Last week, we introduced Dr. Brooke Ellison and her many notable accomplishments. Growing up in Stony Brook, Long Island, she was just a regular kid who spent her days bouncing from karate to dance to Little League baseball. But all that ended when Ellison was walking home from her first day of seventh grade. Crossing the highway just as she had done countless times before, Ellison was suddenly struck by a car. The damage that was done to my body was, you know, just really immeasurable. So first my head hit the windshield of the car and cracked my skull open. And then I was thrown about 100 feet in front of the car, landed on the pavement and bit off about a third of my tongue and you damaged all of my limbs in some way, shape or form. And emergency response arrived at the scene of the accident. I was in cardiac and respiratory arrest. They initiated life-sustaining measures immediately there at that time. When Ellison's family arrived at the hospital, they were told to expect the worst, that their daughter would not survive her injuries. Fortunately, the doctors were wrong. I was in a coma for 36 hours, and then uh, after that, regained awareness of where I was. The lingering injury that I have sustained since the time of my accident was a spinal cord injury. The damage occurred high in her spine, leaving Ellison paralyzed from the neck down and permanently dependent on a ventilator to breathe. Despite this trauma, Ellison went on to graduate from Harvard with a degree in cognitive neuroscience. She's now an associate professor of health policy and medical ethics at Stony Brook University and author of Look Both Ways, an honest reflection of disability and the human experience. While she's worked endlessly for her success, it's only been possible because of the doctors who saved her life 33 years ago. However, since her injuries were so severe, a different judgment call could have been made that day. They could have decided that Ellison's condition was past saving, that they didn't have the skills to help her. While it seems like an impossible judgment call to make, Dr. Jeffrey Bishop, a professor of philosophy and bioethics at St. Louis University, says this situation is a common ethical dilemma in medicine. When you're practicing medicine, you're playing the odds most of the time. And the problem is some of us are optimists and some of us are pessimists. You know? So you throw in this very subjective thing. And so it becomes a difficult thing. That's why being a doc and, and giving advice is really a kind of deeply moral and spiritual thing, because you have to be honest about your own abilities, your own failings, your own inabilities. Bishop says physicians need to realize their limitations in order to best help their patients. It could be that you'd make a judgment that says, look, I see no way of helping or saving this person's life. And it would be arrogant of me to think I could. And it would be harmful to them for me to put them through that, knowing that I statistically I'm not going to be able to save them which is a difficult conclusion to accept. However, Bishop says there are instances where trying to save a patient becomes unethical. I've seen it go the other way with people with, let's say, really metastatic carcinoma or cancer of some sort, where the doc is just like, oh, I can do this, you know, and it it becomes a kind of an overly optimistic, almost an arrogant position where they harm the other direction. And so you're always trying to thread the needle on that. The problem is, is you've got to make the judgment about that particular patient. So you've got to say, look, statistically out of the last hundred, I think only 10 of them will live. Now I got to know, is this one of the 10? Luckily for Ellison, her doctors were confident and skilled enough to get her out of that accident alive. And through this experience, Ellison now brings a unique view to the field of bioethics. Much of bioethics or medical ethics, depending on the precise flavor, 
revolves around your questions like end-of-life decision-making or when is medical intervention, when should that be considered futile or what is a life worth saving or how do we triage care? Which are all questions that Ellison believes are central to people with disabilities. She says bioethicists have historically undervalued the lives of those within the disabled community. There's almost like a presumption that a life lived with a significant disability is not necessarily a life worth living. But who makes that decision? In extreme cases of injury or illness, at what point does a person have the right to end their own life? Should that even be an option? Ellison says this ethical question has garnered a lot of skepticism in the disabled community. The fear is that if people are given the autonomy to choose physician-assisted suicide, it will encourage those with significant disabilities to end their lives. That's why I have found my presence in these conversations to be so critically important. And I think my students gain a lot from my perspective as their instructor, because I have experienced them. I've lived through them, my family, and I know what it's like to be unsure as to whether or not continuation on life support is the right decision. While Ellison is a strong advocate for everyone having full control over their own body, she also stresses that it isn't a decision to take lightly. However, what I also believe equally as strongly, if not more strongly, is that we need to build a world and build a society in which the decision for someone to end his or her life is not the first or the obvious one. Right, so I ask my students every year, like, what would for them would constitute a life not worth living? And they say things like, if I had to be hooked up to machines, or if I couldn't do things independently, or if I could not do the things that I do today, right? So all of these, like, sociocultural questions that surround disability, not necessarily like the disability itself. Her students never draw the line in any specific condition, like paralysis, for example. Instead, their answers are always measured by their ability to move freely and do what they want without restriction. But Ellison says these are issues that can be fixed through technology and public policy. Creating a world that is much more accepting and welcoming of life lived with disabilities so people don't feel like they're going to be marginalized or excluded or you know, removed from society, right? If all of those things are in, put into place, people learn about disability in their childhood, right? And so disability is much more normalized in the human experience, right? Then it's not a terrifying thing. Then it's not like, oh my God, my life is over. Which is how some people made Ellison feel after her accident. Though it happened right after the Americans with Disability Act was passed, Ellison says the societal perception of disability was still very negative. The entire aesthetic around disability was totally different, right? It was very much still a thought of as like under the vantage point of the medical model of disability, right? The disability is kind of like a medical issue in its entirety, right? It's just a medical failure. And people with disabilities could easily be cast aside and marginalized. Actually, you know, the one thing that I was extremely concerned about after my accident was my return to school. Her parents weren't sure how that was going to work or if the school would even let Ellison back into class. She was eventually able to return to school exactly one year after the car accident but faced a lot of resistance from the administration, who feared her condition would be distracting or make her classmates feel uncomfortable. 
these are things that were just said very readily uh, because that was kind of the overall belief about disability. That's something that we should cast aside. And I remember after my accident feeling like that was a mentality that I needed to adopt myself, right? That people with disabilities are the weaker ones, the marginalized ones, the aspect of the population who we should try to steer clear of, right, or feel sorry for. But Ellison believes that by openly talking about disabilities and increasing accessibility within daily life will change society's perception of what it means to live with a disability. Instead of viewing it as a death sentence, it will just be a different way to live, not better or worse than any other life. If those things are put into place and somebody still feels like this is too much for me, I can't do this, that I believe is their choice. But I think we as a society need to be doing a much, much, much better job so that people don't feel like they have no choice but to end their lives. There's not going to be somebody to care for them or they're going to end up in a nursing home or they're not going to have a job or not be able to have any entertainment in their lives or not be considered lovable. Right? All of these things are purely addressable if we actually took the time to address them. Part of that progress lies in stem cell research. The field has the potential to heal permanent injuries and correct birth defects. While this work may seem contradictory to the disabled community's message of empowerment, Ellison says it's simply another way to increase each person's autonomy. In the very same way that people should have the ability to make a decision about when to end their lives, they should also have the decision to potentially not live with a disability. Right, that we need to advance science such that you know, if this is not the chosen way of life, then people can you know, pursue that. She also recognizes that having a disability usually comes with more health risks than able-bodied people. For example, life expectancy is vastly reduced by quadriplegia. That's something that I would rather not have to deal with. And you know, if medical intervention can change that for me, then that would be wonderful. However, just like with many other ethical debates, there may never be a solution that everyone is happy with. But issues like autonomy and accessibility will always be motivation for progress. Ellison's book, Look Both Ways, is available now wherever books are sold. You can find more information about Dr. Brooke Ellison, Dr. Jeffrey Bishop, and all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. Our writer-producer is Kristen Farah. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. I'm Elizabeth Westfield. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. We live in a very ageist society, except that everybody, if they're lucky, will become old. So they're kind of prejudiced against their future selves. Are you prepared to grow old? Then headed outside? Don't forget to wear bug spray. Ticks can spread a number of harmful bacteria, viruses, and even parasites, none of which you want to get. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. If you can show a good money personality, one where you've got good values around how you acquire, how you use, and how you manage money, those patterns will be passed along generations. Making your money work for you rather than the other way around. Then there's an algorithm called the Rave algorithm, which is one of the main ones that they're using to do all of this AI voice cloning, which has kind of taken the internet by storm. Will human musicians be a relic of the past? 
I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal.